You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Welcome back to the Stateside Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. A bit of a different tone for our, our guest type for the show. Um, I think you guys listening are going to find some value in this. Today, we have Eric German, who's a music attorney. And he's uh, been helping me out and a lot of friends of ours out along the way. Welcome to the show, Eric. That's a clap for you. Thank you so much, James. The pleasure is all mine. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, well, thanks for the time. Where are you located, Eric? I am coming to you live from Santa Monica, California, a great southern, uh, sunny, sunshine beach community of Santa Monica. Well, I'm incredibly jealous. Uh, grew up in, in Orange County as a kid, moved to Oregon in junior high, and now I'm in my late 30s. So I've been here most of my life. You know, the listeners of the podcast know how jealous I am of the California weather. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I think that it's definitely Southern California in particular and California in general has taken a lot of hits over the last few years uh, in the pandemic and a lot of people uh, talking about moving out and this and that. But, uh, you know, oh, time and time again, I keep coming back to it's the best weather in the world. It really is. It's something else, man. <laughs> so I, uh, um, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to leave. Well, before you and I dork out on our shared interest of Disney parks, and our, our Disney Park love, which we just found out about each other as we were starting this Zoom call here. Um, let's let's get some real business stuff out of the way here, Eric. What, what do you say? That sounds fantastic. Well, for the listeners, for those who don't know who you are, can you kind of give the, the quick bio and, and how you found yourself doing what you're doing? I'm a lifelong music fan, right? I grew up playing music, uh, doing anything I could possibly do to be around music. I played in bands. I... Uh, worked in record stores, I worked in recording studios, I took classes, I learned music theory, and uh, it was all in service and in love of uh, the great uh, mistress rock and roll. I uh, really had just always been done everything I could possibly do to be around it. And when I started learning th- about uh, the internet, I'm 52 years old. So when I started learning about uh, uh, the, you know, how community, you know, the, the earliest days of the internet, I started realizing we're going to get all our music through a computer and that computers are going to have the, the ability to unite and connect fan bases and bring people around the world together. And it kind of makes kind of niche music and genre music possible in a way that uh, never was before, because even if there's only 50,000 people that like uh, a certain band, they can all find each other and connect and kind of rally around it. I got very interested in that. And so I went to law school in 1994 with a special focus on the intersection between music, the internet, and uh, copyright law. And I tried to uh, learn everything I possibly could about the conversion of the music industry from physical to digital and the integration of social media and you know uh, how you capture fan bases online and build content online and all of that. And so. That started me down a path that uh, had me working for major record companies, uh, litigating copyright cases because I can read and write music. I did a lot of You Stole My Song type cases from major pop stars, uh, but I also worked on some of the earliest internet file sharing cases, including most famously the Napster litigation. I was the baby lawyer on that. I worked on cases against uh, Kazaa. I worked on cases for the Motion Picture Association for 
a lot of technology and I saw a lot of how entertainment came online and then uh, moved to that digital uh, consumption basis. You know, I was there before iTunes and saw that get built and saw the advent of streaming and I've really been interested in all that for a long time. So I came at it kind of from an academic perspective, but always with a love and a passion for music. And then once I kind of established myself, planted the flag, made partner at my law firm and all of that, I'm a partner at a law firm called Mitchell Silberberg and up here in Los Angeles, California. I also have offices in Washington, D.C. and in New York City. But when uh, I got to kind of uh, enmeshed in that, so to speak, I would still stay connected to band culture and go out and go to shows and stuff like that. And a lot of the guys that I played music with early on, you know, even pre-college and high school and such, uh, went on to success in the music industry. And so kind of, I always felt like a band guy who got in on the other side of the uh, equation. I kept those contacts alive. And then, uh, you know, as I started building up my own practice, my own book of business, people started asking me to do record deals for their bands. And uh, I did a lot of work for independent record labels via uh, uh, a trade association called the American Association of Independent Music. And um, I worked with a lot of the metal labels and I was working on kind of high level uh, stuff. But, you know, after the meeting ended, I would talk to the label owners about the metal bands that they had on their uh, on their label. And some of them found that pretty interesting. So they started hiring me, teaching me the ropes, showing me how to do record deals. And uh, I did work for most famously a company called Century Media Records for a long time. It was one of my clients and signed a whole generation of bands there and kind of became more of a liaison between the label and the and their talent and started kind of working with those bands and getting to know them and, and uh, eventually started signing bands myself, and bringing uh, bands to that label and to other labels. And these days, you know, I work with about 35 different acts uh, and uh, I have a team of people working under me and we, uh, you know, I love what I do. It's, uh, I guess that's the, the best short summary I can give you. That's an amazing history. And I think like, like you, I, I have a similar, you know, we, we did different things, but I have a similar uh, path in that I love music and I'm obsessed with it and i it's arguably the thing I feel the most comfortable in and around and, you know, talking about, but being in a band is tough, right? It's like winning the the goddamn lottery. I just wanted to stay involved. And, and like you, I just, I found myself on the other side of the table as it were. And now my laptop is my instrument and my phone <laughs> uh, and zoom calls, right? That's a great way to say it. Laptop is my instrument. That's right. We're increasingly in a uh, post pandemic era. We all learned we didn't necessarily have to be tethered to any one particular place. So that laptop and that phone, not only is that your instrument, that's your entire tools of trade. That's your office. That's everything else. So uh, it's pretty cool that we can do what we do and we can do it from anywhere and we can do it at any time. And uh, in a, in a gig economy where Uber drivers and Airbnb and stuff like that, I feel like I can work, you know, at my own pace when I need to. Yeah, no, it is really cool. Speaking of that kind of gig economy world we live in and the reality that you just can basically do this from anywhere, um, the barrier to entry is is falling down in front of us. The, the gatekeepers are not as prevalent as they used to be. They're still there, but it's just it's just changed. In your in your assessment, what is 
What is your kind of state of the union of the music industry? Are you hopeful? Do you? I mean, beyond hopeful, mm -hmm. beyond hopeful, I'm actually literally seeing, you know, uh, success happening left and right. First of all, the last few years with um, the advent of uh, copyright sales, uh, the catalog sales that bands have been doing, I've seen firsthand how owning copyrights is monetized and what the value of those copyrights can be. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's staggeringly uh, uh, good stuff. Now, whether, I'm not sure that whether that market has cooled off a little bit or if it is cooling off or if it's, uh, you know, where that's headed. But what I can tell you is you, you know, if you own a hit song, if you own a, even a piece of a hit song, or if you own a catalog full of hit, those hit songs, that's, you know, that's wealth. That's not just, you know, that's real yeah. money that pays out over a long period of time. And, uh, you know, we grew up looking at uh, music like, you know, you buy a CD of your favorite band and you would listen to it, if, you know, until it wore out and it didn't or, or you'd buy a CD because you thought it might be cool and you listen to it once and you still had the same transaction price. You still had the same purchase price for buying that CD. But in the era of streaming, right, you, your favorite song streams forever and ever and ever and ever. If you keep coming back to the soundtrack of your life, you're really putting incremental micropayments in the pockets of those creators for the rest of time, right? So I'm really starting to really truly understand not only how much that stuff is worth, but how to put bands in positions to be able to not only be in a position to, to maximize the value of that stuff, but to basically squeeze every drop out of it, right? And it's fun and it's a game, but it's also quite lucrative and quite successful. Then on the flip side, one of the other things I'm noticing is in the empowerment of how quickly you can get something going on your own. You don't need those gatekeepers that you talked about necessarily, always. You certainly don't have to be blessed by a gatekeeper to have success in the music industry. In fact, most artists are probably best served by starting out independent and working to establish a fan base and put some numbers up on the board before anybody tries to even solicit any kind of valuation or any kind of uh, investment or any kind of signing, any kind of contracts and stuff. And so that part is fun too, to, to, to build it, to get to that point. And what I've seen most recently is a lot of very successful artists uh, either exploding on TikTok or very quickly going from zero to hero, so to speak, certainly being able to create, you know, real businesses without the blessing of gatekeepers. And then what I've also now seen are more and more, you know, mid-tier developing artists, let's call it that, right? What I mean is they're not nothing. They're not, they haven't gotten to the level where it was ready to kind of monetize it or to solicit those investments or go out and get big time management or record labels or publishing deals, but they have amassed a bit of a fan base. And what I'm seeing is those bands are getting up. I don't know. And I'm trying to figure it out, right? Because I'm not talking about one, two, three, or four. I'm talking about like six or seven baby bands that I've kind of been coaching along or trying to help them develop a little bit behind the scenes without really soliciting anything. And even in the last few weeks, almost all of them have either landed a big festival appearance or gotten a crazy sync license or had someone uh, want to sign them to a record deal or had a big time manager reach out. And I'm wondering, am I just really great at betting on horses or have I, have these bands just been around long enough now? Because 
these are mostly a crop of bands that I kind of identified just before the pandemic or did the pandemic kill off so much young talent that uh, we're now, if you survive that, my Motley crew of, you know, uh, stalwarts are now the, the next great option or if it's just their time, I don't know, but I am really, really bullish on the music industry, both from seeing what is possible in terms of, the value that can be derived from copyrights and also uh, seeing how quickly new talent can ascend and seeing the opportunities from the traditional mainstream music industry that are coming on the bands that did hang in there and did, you know, eat their vegetables and build it, uh, you know, over the course of the last couple of years. Of those artists you just mentioned, what were some of the kind of key attributes or some of the, the points that you noticed that were popping off for them? Is it like social media numbers? Is it, are they, are people showing up to their shows, streams? Number one, number one thing is that you got it. Like what I'm talking about on those artists, all of them had something major that looks like it gives them hope that's going to advance the ball. Uh, you know, and it's all different things, right? Like I said, it could be a couple of them got added to some festivals and a couple of them got uh, uh, reached, record companies have reached out with, real substantial, real big boy offers. Uh, some of them have uh, had interesting other artists come in and want to collaborate. It's just signs of life, I guess, is what I'm trying to yeah. say. But if you ask me a different question, what does a band have in common that would attract those? That's what I am asking, yeah. And what, what it is, is yeah, you got you to gotta, you gotta show the world that it, it, in the old days, in the 70s or 80s, we were waiting for something. You know, almost what what they call him in uh, Wayne's World. You know, Mister Big mm -hmm. or some cigar chomping fat cat would show up in their white limo right. and uh, be super cheesy. <laughs> uh, you know, say they're going to make you a star, right? And they would have to discover you at some gig, and then it would open the floodgate and let you, uh, you know, be a band. And and nowadays it's not like that at all. In fact, I don't shop bands at all. I don't want to sit there and try to hit people up and say, hey, check out this act. You should try. I think it's a terrible idea because everybody's on the Internet. Everybody's on social media. Everybody like James, if you were following me on Instagram and I'm working with a baby band, I'm going to share it on my Instagram story relentlessly. You're going to see it. You're going to know. And if you think it's rad, you'll reach out. So and, and, and right. look, every A&R person isn't going to a bunch of shows and doing showcases and demos. You know what they're doing? They're looking at what's going viral on Spotify and TikTok and what's blowing up on YouTube. Yeah. And as soon as those numbers happen, they're going to hit you up anyway. And if they don't happen, they don't care. No matter what the song really sounds like for the most part, unless you're doing something really, truly, some sort of gimmick or some sort of hook. Uh, if it's just good music, uh, you know, they're going to go cool, rad, you know, but if there's not numbers, nobody's really going to invest at any level. That's indicative of anything that's really going to take you to the next level. Uh, maybe they'll speculate and do a real cheap deal and tie you up forever, but who wants that deal anyway? So, uh, you know, what the answer is, what do they have in common usually is numbers, meaning followers on Spotify, meaning subscribers on YouTube, meaning plays on TikTok. Meaning, you know, that that sort of thing, right? Instagram followers to a certain extent as well. Well, being in a band is hard enough. Coming up with music that really speaks to a large crowd is tough. Touring is tough. The whole damn thing is hard. And outside of that, 
managing your band, booking shows, you know, finding someone to legally represent your band, all that stuff is tough, you know, and, and furthermore, understanding the legal side of your music career can be very complicated and confusing. I find it awfully confusing. What are some common common mistakes you see bands make? Or we'll even open up because, you know, a lot of our audience is they're on the production side of things, producers, mixers, etc. That's obviously what I what I do. And I'll, I'll open that advice up to producers as well. But what are some sort of legal mistakes that you see people make and, and how can they protect themselves? Well, legal mistakes for sure are signing bad contracts too early. The number one thing I see with people in the music industry, whether it's a producer, a songwriter, a band, is being too thirsty to be able to have something to tell your friends at school. So leaping at opportunities that either you're not ready for or aren't very meaningful and looking for the external uh, white knight to come in and help you and save you and sign you or give you that great opportunity or thinking that if I only got a manager or a lawyer, they're going to do this for me. I, you know, uh, that, that, and, and that person that can't wait, that can hang. I tell bands all the time, you got to release a series of six to eight singles over the course of six to eight months. Uh, I mean, uh, over the course of uh, eight months to a year, you know, space six to eight weeks apart. And you got to do it and do it again and do it again. And I tell them, you want to build a profile because look, there are, there are songwriters and there are, People that are great at that, but they don't really want to build a brand or be the face. Cool. Just write songs for other people. And there are fantastic guitar players or fantastic, uh, you know, cool. Go be a session player or go on the road with somebody or whatever. Um, If you want to be the brand, and this goes for producers too. There are producers that are brands that put out albums that are famous, right? There are also producers that are behind the scenes that are, there are guys that are engineers. And then there are guys, you know, there's a lot of different, Stuff like that. But if, if you want to be the brand, you know, I can tell you this. If you're a great songwriter and you write a hit and you could give the song to my project for, that has two followers or you could give it to some big pop star, you're going to give it to the pop star. You, the pop star is the, the mannequin that we're going to hang the nice clothes on, right? <laughs> the, the good song, great production. And if you were, um, if you, uh, were, were one of these people that really wants to be that mannequin. You want other people to want to hang their nice clothes on you and you want to be the vehicle for which we're going to get this, this music and the songs and this musicianship out. You got to build that, man. You got to have something that somebody cares about and they got to, you got to have an audience. And, and I think that the biggest mistake people make is they don't want to put in the time. They want to be famous. They want to be the star, but they don't want to take the time to build the audience. And they think that because they're good, Trust me, good is the price of admission. We wouldn't even be having a conversation if you weren't good. But because they're good or because they have cool songs, because they want it real bad, they think that uh, they should deserve it. And they don't like not having something to tell their friends that, uh, hey, uh, look, I'm doing, I'm on tour with so-and-so or I'm in a studio with so-and-so or I'm, so they leap that, that, that neediness, that insecurity forces them to leap at something either the wrong manager or the wrong, I can't tell you how many people hire booking agents early because they need to get on tour with no intention of keeping that person. If they don't, if they can get somebody else and it's a stepping stone along the way, 
I'd hate to be that guy at the bottom that's constantly, whether it's a manager or uh, a breaking acts and then losing them, right? Um, because these people are willing to, they just want whatever they can mm-hmm. to get to that next step. And they think that the getting to that step is the next step is external. It's not external, it's internal. And what, what you should do is do everything yourself. Don't commit to any deals, any contracts. Don't sell a piece of your company at a low valuation. Build the valuation and then take the investment and then give up the equity. Then bring people onto the team. People think you have to bring people onto the team in order to, to make the value. I see it the other way around. Make the value and then put the team together. You're going to get better deals. Yeah. You're going to get a higher valuation. You're going to get a better quality of people. And uh, so if, the, if I teach anybody anything at all, it's be patient, wait, build it yourself for as long as possible. Hold out like a startup company would. Don't take that investment money until you've got a profitable business. You're going to make, you're going to do much better for yourself. Yeah. You know, we all make that mistake. And I, especially, I think, you know, specifically music, it, it involves people's dreams. <laughs> and when, when you're, you're chasing a dream and this thing that you've always wanted, you know, often people want to make it in a band from the time they're fairly young. And if they have any inclination that this might actually be a reality, then I think you're right. If something shiny is dangled in front of them, they're going to take it. And I think some, they also, James, they also get so, um, how do I say it? They get so ego laden. So many people, their identity is wrapped yes. up in this, yes. right? And so if they're not doing it at a certain level that they think, they feel like they're almost trying to tell you how much they've done. You know what? I, I When I meet a new band, right? And I go, hey, you've got 14 followers. And they're like, yeah, but I've opened for Red Hot Chili Peppers mm. and I've been on synced on this thing and I was managed by this big shop person and I was sent to this label and I did these other three tours. And I go, oof. I would rather you didn't do those things because at least then I know that uh, you don't have more of an audience because you never got the opportunity. And maybe if I could get you those opportunities, that could affect the situation, mm-hmm. right? But in those situations, these people are sitting there name dropping left and right. And I go, yeah, and you're still nothing. What the heck am I going to do? If you open for the red hot jelly peppers and, you, and no one cares, What's the, what's going to, right. you know, what am I going to do? You've already, the, the customers have already said they don't like it, right? So do yourself a favor. All of these artists need to chill out and just build online and don't ask for anything. Just put it brick by brick by brick. And when it's time, and I'm telling you, the last couple of weeks for me with all these other bands have shown me how powerful this is. When it's time, when you're worth something, you're going to come to you. And the opportunities are going to be much greater. And you know what really sucks? Nothing kills a band more than a shitty record deal, right? Yeah. Or a terrible manager. You know how many bands have like fought and litigated to get out of deals that they got themselves into yeah. early because they were too, right? So one is, and by the way, if you sign that record deal now, or if you sign an agreement now, you know what they're going to tell you to do? Go build your family. Yeah, that's online. right. That's right. You have to do the same shit anyway. Yeah be a free agent when it happens yeah speaking of record deals what is your take on the role of a record uh record label and um what yeah what what do you think is the role of i mean it's i guess it's still the same but how how important do you think that is for a band 
And do you think that record labels are going to have to pivot um, as we progress in this thing and as times change? Well, look, first of all, what, what do record labels do? Of course, they serve as, as banks. They finance projects, right? They have either uh, the ability to hire out expertise or they have in-house they kind of co-sign the situation if they're a brand that somebody really cares about. And so associate you with a fan base or with a, a community or a genre or whatever. And they uh, ultimately give you distribution, right? Distribution is easy. Anybody can do it. Literally, there's a dozen services. Especially these days. And you can upload stuff, right? The money, if you're rich, if you have a job, or if you create the shit yourself in your bedroom, right? You don't need the money to make the songs or a cool producer that's willing to spec you out or whatever, you know, and, and, or you, you know, you make the videos on your own uh, phone or whatever there, you know, maybe you don't need that either. And frankly, the best way to put out a song right now might be to record it in your bedroom, upload it to, to the DSPs on some cheap, you know, pay 40 bucks and, and, and put it up on, uh, on, and then go pound away at TikTok and see. Yeah. None of that really costs that much money necessarily, right? So the money aspect may or may not be a thing, but are labels necessary? First of all, the definition of, or the, the scope of what a label is has really somewhat changed in the sense that there are so many different versions, of yeah. whether it's label services or a distributor with elevated label services or some sort of, uh, management company that has a distribution deal or an imprint on the side, or, or, or is it a traditional, is it an indie label or is it a traditional old school, you know, major label and what you get out of those companies are, you know, dependent and whether it's right for you is dependent on who you are. Cause I always say context is king and we need to know where are you at with your career for a developing act that has nothing going on, no followers, no anything. I would stay away from all that stuff and build it yourself until you got a business that's actually meaningful, right? Or, or at least the, the, the strong indication that it's headed in that direction. You know, something that is, that is objectively quantifiable in terms of numbers or fans or followers or whatever. I wouldn't go anywhere near a record. I wouldn't bother anyone. They're, they, they're not making any money. They're not going to be that enthusiastic. Uh, they're not going to invest that much in the deals are going to be. If you find a, of course, there are exceptions to all this. If you find someone who totally gets it and they're going to smash it for you and open up the coffers, sure. even though you don't have anything, cool. But like a mid-tier or a major band that's at the peak years of their career where they found that fan base, they know what they're doing. And now they're, it's about pouring gasoline on the flame and maximizing it. That's a great place to be at a label. As long as you find a label that gets it and is willing to invest and spend because look, you're making enough money that somebody meaningful and good would be willing to tag in and invest in this thing. And you're also probably trying to accomplish certain things that are different than a baby band. Like you want to be on FM radio, maybe. You want to be on certain A-list playlists. You want to be doing expensive music videos and you know maybe you want to be putting out those videos on a youtube channel with millions of subscribers or something right and so those situations where you have marketing experts genre experts uh that are really you know you're popping off in that kind of middle or peak part of your career 
I think labels are still not only important, I think they're, they're really important. Because I think if you step outside that system too early, you try to self-release, you're kind of on island. You may not realize how much work it is too for a band at that level to try to run their own label. Then maybe it's you've established yourself at a certain point and there's really only so much you're going to do and your new music is sort of at a certain level and you're not trying to grow new fans. Maybe then it does make sense to go back to self-releasing. Maybe you've got some money and you can kind of build out the situation and you're not looking cool or associate with newer bands and you don't really need that much and it's kind of all contained. So, you know, I think record labels in that middle, that big fat mm -hmm. middle make a lot of sense. I think at the beginning and the end of your career, it's possible that they don't. I would agree. Pivoting here, you mentioned before we started recording that you teach a few days a week. Um, can you expand on that if you if you want to share that and, and what are you teaching? Yeah, I teach Syracuse University's New House School of Public Communication, Los Angeles semester. I teach literally I teach communications law five oh six for kids. Primarily this semester, uh they're part of the Marty Bandier School of Music from Syracuse University. So they come out here to Southern California and they intern at uh, incredible companies, management companies, booking agents, talent agencies, the top, top, top kids. Uh, these are sons and daughters of titans of the music industry. These are uh, young, very good students who are, you know, gunning for top positions in the music industry. And they take classes while they're out here. I'm a Syracuse University alumnus. I've been doing this for about 15 years. Wow. So the cool thing is, right, I'm teaching 20 and 21 year olds uh, and been doing it for, you know, I think I calculated recently, I've had about 900 kids come through my class. That's incredible. Right, who are in Los Angeles or most focused on being in Los Angeles, working with music. I started doing it about 15 years ago. So these kids are, you know, 20 to 35 years old. They're not the, the, the huge leaders of the industry for the most part yet, but there's, I've got an army. Yeah. that I met that I helped to, to the music industry and, they're scattered throughout. So, for example, I had a uh, an artist recently take a gig working for a major pop star, and uh, their day to day person was my former student. Very cool. Right? I have a client. I just got off the phone earlier today that uh, was my intern that was from the class that uh, was uh, um, that has not only one of the top EDM acts. And, and runs a management company. I think they had like six artists on Coachella this last year, but they have uh, uh, a top five pop mm. song right now on their self-release label, right? Uh, I have another student earlier this week that started, that that actually interned for me while at Syracuse, then uh, went to law school, externed for me while in law school, and now she just started as an associate of my law firm. And I can tell you dozens of stories. Like, so it's it's pretty cool. I call it the uh, orange handshake or whatever. We're all uh, <laughs> Syracuse, and I, and I, you know, I love doing it. I've been doing it for a long time. That's great. That's that's really cool. I, I like that that you you know have a chance to give back and cultivate the the young up and coming talent. With that said, you mentioned you know these these young people, most of them moving to Los Angeles or interning there. What is your, you know, when we started this, we were talking about the beauty of what you and I do is that we can more or less do this job from any, anywhere in the world. As long as you have internet, you got a laptop and a phone, you can, you can do this, right? You can make money. Now, with that said, I, my guess is you would agree with me that 
there is still a lot of value to in person. And there's a lot of value to showing up to the office. And there's a lot of value to living somewhere geographically that makes sense for the business you want to work in, not just music industry, whatever industry you might be in. What's your take on that? Being face-to-face really does help a lot. We've seen the value of that more. Look, what what here's what I've learned. You don't have to be there yeah. all the time. You do need to be face-to-face right. sometimes. Not need to be, but it's a good thing. Like I've recently, I've been doing a lot of traveling this uh, late summer and early fall. Uh, there's so many tours so out on the yeah. right? So I sit there and I talk every single day on the phone to these people, but like, I had six shows in 15 days. Most recently, a week or two ago, I did. Uh, uh, I've gone out on a couple of tours. I've gone to multiple dates on, on the road. And when you show up there, it's just, you're right, cool things happen. Yeah. And maybe I run into somebody backstage who calls me for work that was in yeah. the other bands. Or maybe, but, or maybe there's a conversation that happens that goes deeper than it normally would. Or maybe, look, I think that it's important what, for what I do. I got to be in it. Yeah. I, I, it's almost market research. I go to the show. I'm checking out what are the fans like? What's the demographics? How many people are here? What does it feel like? And then finally, when I talk about bands, I and I'm constantly coaching them, encouraging them, advising them. I don't get on a bus. I don't go. Uh, uh, it's a grind out there. Oh, hell yeah. And I think I feel that in a different way when I'm out there. I also on the positive uh, thing. And, and so I have empathy for them. I respect them. But I, also, on a positive note, um, it reminds me why I do this sometimes when the war of the crowd is happening. You know oh, totally. I mean? So all that physicality is important. Now, you have to live in L.A. You know, in the old days, I would say absolutely you had to. These days, no, you just have to live somewhere with an airport and be willing to get on a plane yeah. a lot. Because you can go to a festival and see a lot of people. You can go out and hit a tour date. Sometimes the L.A. date's kind of the worst date on the tour to go if you want to actually go hang with the band and be you know uh maybe there's less chaos yeah right, somewhere else so you know i don't know could you live in nashville could you live in vegas yeah of course right new york um austin texas uh new york city um you know could you live in portland or seattle uh, yeah probably san francisco you can probably do those things and still be fine i can tell you i was let's see i've been in Hey, I'm be in Vegas this weekend. I've been in San Diego, Anaheim, Vegas. Uh, uh, I went to Portland recently. I've been to San Francisco. This is all in the last like three weeks, right? So I guess, you know, I just, uh, I have every airline app on my phone. Yeah, but- I've got all airport lounges dialed. Yeah. I've got Lyft and Uber ready to pick me up in a black car, go. take me wherever the heck I want to go. Yeah, I think I, got, I think the uh, best thing about LA personally is it's not so much like the events because you're right, some of the LA events can be like the worst shows on the, the tour on the run. But for me, it's it's the the coffee dates. It's like guys like you, I can just you know, hey, you, you're free for lunch tomorrow, and there's just it's a working town. Yeah. Um, I live in stupid Portland, Oregon, where that's just not the case. There's there's a there's a joke that Portland, Oregon is where young people go to retire, and there's a lot <laughs> I went of truth to, to Portland that. for the kickoff of a tour not too long ago, a couple weeks ago, and we I stayed uh, downtown. Yikes! And uh, I was waiting for all the homeless people and the protesters and all that stuff you hear about, and did not see any of that. It was very quiet downtown. You didn't see any homeless people? No, not wow. really where I was, but. 
in kind of a, uh, uh, I think a nice part of it sure. was kind of like shut down, but it's still open. It was yeah. weird. Like things were open late, but there was a lot of street traffic. And, uh, then I saw, um, but we drove the show itself was in the RV center or something in Washington, which was not Portland, but okay. Yeah. Vancouver. That was a totally different world, right? 20 minutes away or a half hour. Uh, it's Vancouver, otherwise known as Vantucky. <laughs> so Northwest you know, Rednecks. I, uh, but like, yeah, it's great to be able to get in, in touch with people uh, on it, you know, very easily. Yeah. And I like living in a place where other people come to visit all the time. So people are constantly totally. showing up and saying, hey, and I usually either have, I have an office in Century City, mm-hmm. California, and I work a lot from home in Santa Monica. And so, uh, you know, I give people a choice to say, they say, hey, you want to get together this week? I'm like, yeah, you want to come to Century City or you want to come to Santa yeah. Monica? Okay. Yeah. And uh, you know, I might either walk downstairs from the building and eat at the place at the base of the thing, or I might walk across the street from where I live at home. Um, but one way or another, you're coming there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Willing to do that, I'm willing to hang out. You know? Well, I'll hit you up. My wife and I, were, we're really, really heavily considering um a split living lifestyle uh money depending and if we can find the right property but yeah we would love to spend part of the year down in california and the other part of the year up here in oregon where our family's at yeah i'll definitely hit you up when i head down there another thing i wanted to kind of elaborate on is disneyland (laughs) (laughs) we we were talking about our our other hobbies that we're into i mentioned that i'm a, a massive disney park dork and you said that you know your stuff too. Um, as a California guy, are you a Disneyland proper fan? Is Walt Disney World just as good to you? If you had to pick, which one's better? All right. So let, let me take a step back. What I, you know? What I'm really a fan of? Immersive entertainment, right? Yeah, yeah. That means Meow Wolf museums. Totally. That means uh, retail spaces that are themed. That means like corporate showcase spots. That means certain kinds of restaurants i like i like dipping into different worlds who's the king who's the black sabbath of uh immersive entertainment it's walt disney yeah. right and walt disneyland is like the first black sabbath right. with those big dots it's that is that you know how do you not like that right so do i like walt disney world sure do i like uh cruise ships do i like uh you know, like I, I really like Omega Mart in in Las Vegas. Uh, I'm the same I like, way. Uh, I like installations. Yeah. I like uh, 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 you know immersive art. And but yes, uh, what is my favorite? Look, I went to Florida a few months back. My family is all totally my brother, my 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 wife, my kid, like my brothers. It's like it's a disease. Florida, the weather, dude. Well, I don't want to hate. I'm with you. Oh my, brutal. God. Hey, by the way, speaking of humidity, I was just in California over the weekend. It was awful. That's not like that very often. No, it's not. Almost never. Yeah, it sucked, man. Right. But the uh, Florida is like that all the time. And uh, then it rains for like, you know, cats and dogs. Yeah, and then, yeah. And then it's, it's awful. So that kind of makes Disney World suck. Obviously, there's more shit in Disney World. And I was telling you, I really like the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. I thought that was incredible. Yeah. I like there are certain rides at Disney World, whether it's uh, uh, Andorra, uh, Avatar, the new Guardian, mm-hmm. the Everest, 
coaster. There are rides that don't exist out here that are. I haven't done the Guardians one yet. And then I'm a little geek. Like I read the shit on the internet and when a new thing goes out, like I said, hit the app, hit the car, go on a plane. Like what, what's, what's this, what's the point of having success in life if you can't like do the dumb things that you want to do when you're a hey, kid? Man. Like my hobbies are, are that and I love football too, right? And so I travel to football games or all the time, you know? Uh, so, but yeah, I like, uh, I like Florida uh, for the reasons I just told you, but Disneyland proper, just absolutely that is that's the spot that's probably the better just the overall more heartwarming you know and it's probably the coolest one ever like what we got started talking about this and i noticed the posters you were talking you were explaining to me what they were and i asked you you said you had been down here and i asked you if you went to d23 and that i knew what that was and you knew what that was and that's how we got started yeah 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 well it's funny eric there's there's actually a strange, uh, large amount of people in the music industry that I've noticed that love Disney parks. I'm not sure what that is, but there's, it, it seems to be, and it's always, it's like the most tattooed, like punk rock guy is like the biggest star Wars dork or, you know, Marvel oh, fan or, or whatever. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I love it. Well, I, I mean, like I, I personally think uh, rise of the resistance at galaxy's edge is one of the greatest team park rides. That Agreed. Created of all of that. Um, it's incredible. Bringing it to the music world. I think that what bands need to do is they need to create their own theme parks. They need to make, create their own immersive universe. Like I work with a band called ice nine kills and this dude oh. has created a universe. It's a That's such a great right? example, There's Eric connected stories and video. Yeah. And all that and like i talked to somebody one time that interviewed for um insomniac entertainment and they said our competition is another festival our competition is disneyland right and that's what like you know trippy light shows and weird like like yeah let's go down the rabbit hole man let's get like and and with with bands and with music and with festivals and experiences and you hear that word a lot when you're talking to festival promoter. They talk about experiences. Yeah. Let's take this back to the beginning of this conversation. What really motivates me and drives me in the world is connectivity. What I love so much about music is bringing people together. I love the community. I love the brotherhood. I love the bonds. You know, I, I my daughter just started college and I was thinking about it. How did I meet people in college? I saw other people with band t-shirts that I liked. And I said, that, oh, you like Metallica? Yeah. I like Metallica too. And I had instant yeah. friends, man. You know it, right? And so I uh, I love that community and I love creating that space and, and, you know, all of this stuff. I want all of my clients and all of the artists I work with to build their theme park through social media, through music videos, through merchandising, through tours, through production, through the songs themselves. If you can create a universe, graphic novels or whatever else, it's on. I went to one of my clients, this is called AWOL Nation, and, and the guy opened up for 21 mm, Pilots. I worked that tour or, or that show here in Portland. What did all the 21 Pilots fans have? Do you remember? What did they have? They were all dressed up. Oh, yeah. Costume, yeah. You know? Yellow tape all over them or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, right. What was going on with that? Right. right? Like, and I'm not talking about three or four people. I'm talking about 60 to 70% of the audience covered in have you ever seen the band ghost live yeah i have of course yeah yeah that's the same thing it's like the half of the audience is all like it's like halloween every night it's so fun and and i said to myself if you're if you're in a band 
where people are showing up in cosplay, you've done something. I agree. Ghost, of course. And like, you know, I recently was, uh, I worked with the band Mudvayne at Reunited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at their show uh, in Vegas a couple weeks ago, and I saw guys dressed up in cosplay of like <laughs> Mudvayne guys and stuff. Like, all right, we're doing this, right? And in whether it's Slipknot that has the knot fest things where mm. they have like smells and a knot knot fest, a Slipknot like a museum and hides and other bands that they would like and stuff. Yeah, dude, Spencer from Ice Nine Kills just did a con in uh, Boston. Uh, it's called the Silver Scream Con, and it was literally a horror convention that was highlighted by them with his band and all one from his universe. And all of his collaborators and everybody signing autographs and super fans showed up and it was it was insane. And so that's what I'm interested in. That's what that's the connective dot between it all. Of course, Disneyland is just an incredible example. Look at E23. What are people doing? Dressing up in costume, yep. right? Cosplay. What are um people super fans, super collectors? Yes. Like the ultimate version of this is KISS, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, Eric, you are you are speaking to my soul right now. This is you're you're putting into words what I always try to tell people. Yeah. It's like people just think it's just some place with a bunch of long lines and, and candy. It's like, yeah, that's it if that's what you see. But yeah. there there are a lot of parallels to the things that we, you know, love, which is punk rock and, and music and the spectacle. And you're yeah. right, KISS KISS started all this. And and so with when it comes to uh uh you know, the Disney side of things, I've just, uh, I'm fascinated. I'm the type of person that is really interested in how do you build these spaces and how do you make that emotional connection with people and how do you, uh, how do you take them out of their mundane day-to-day lives and give them something memorable that, uh, you know, what did Walt say? It was a place to connect with the family and to bring the, like. Well, speaking of Walt, I mean, you know, as a, as a business owner and a entrepreneur and a, a fan of, of business, you know, Walt Disney is one of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time. They built a behemoth that is uh, that is today. So I love people that love things, James. Right. Right. Why do you think I love NFL football? So much? that's one of my brands. Everyone knows that I'm a super fan of the Raiders because it's Raider right. Nation. It's a right. I've never seen anything like this. You know, I'm, I, if I see a dude in a Raider jersey, they see they're they're yelling at Raiders and like, we're a fist bump. That's my brother. Yeah, right yeah, there. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I just love that kind of shit. And I love being in a stadium full of people that are getting emotional and passionate. And like, you'll say, why do you care so much about whether the Raiders win or lose? Cause that's the fun part is caring so much. Right. Right. And anything that elicits that kind of passion base, whether it's a uh, nerd culture or sports culture or music culture, to me, it all hits the same note. Yeah. Well said. Damn. Well, that is a beautiful way to start wrapping this this here podcast up. Hey, man, this has been amazing. And I, I think the audience is going to find a ton of value in this. Um, is there anything you want to promote anywhere people can find you, whether your socials or email, whatever? Yeah, well, my 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 website is www.msk.com. M is in Mary, S is in Sam, K is in kittycat.com. And uh, I'm EJ at EJ German on Twitter at EJ German on Instagram at uh, I don't know on Facebook. I don't know what my, yeah, at, I don't know how knows. that works. No but, one does. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm there. I'm out there. I try to, uh, uh, you know, stay connected on the internet. 
I've never uploaded a TikTok, but I sure do look at it. Oh yeah, it's amazing. And what do I want to promote? I want to promote uh, uh, this this podcast and what you're doing and your great talent. The way we connected, I think we should promote uh, uh, Mr. Gilbert and Mr. McQueen. Oh yeah, right? your clients. Oh, yeah. Right, these guys are. Uh, they've worked. I work with a lot of active rock bands, and these guys are writing, producing, uh, and doing a lot of killer work and. Yeah. I really, really, really appreciate them. And I appreciate what a pleasure it's been to work with you on, on those clients. And, you know, we've recently you know, had to do some paperwork back and forth with some of the, uh, to document some of the great art that these guys have created with my clients. And uh, so, you know, I just shout out to all those kinds of lunch pail dudes that are out there that are making a Hell living yeah. music. And uh, I'm uh, all for it. So I can't, I can't wait to do more. Well, thanks for being out there protecting all of us. And, uh, you know, we're a bunch of ding-dongs, so we need smart legal guys like yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, if nothing else, I'll see you, I'll see you at Disneyland, Jim. But let's, uh, let's stay uh, connected. And I really thank you for, for chatting with me today and having me on my podcast. Oh, I appreciate it. Pleasure's mine. I appreciate it. All right, buddy. Well, we'll, we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.